Hello, heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. A quick note that Gen Con is only a month away. I'm going to be speaking on a number of panels with other OneShot Network hosts, in addition to the Industry Insider presentations. So come hear me and James D'Amato on Romance and RPGs, or me and Kenneth Height on podcasting, or me and Catherine Himes on making gaming more welcoming to newcomers, and a ton of other interesting topics with some really smart folks. Plus, I will be at the Games on Demand area helping run LARPs on demand. Show up, pick a game, and try freeform LARPing in the most low-stakes, high-fun environment you could possibly ask for. Gen Con is going to be amazing, and I really hope to see you there. My guest this week is Joanna Koyonen, an expert in Nordic LARP, as well as an experienced designer, TV and radio broadcaster, author, consultant, and media analyst. She's been playing and organizing major LARP events for over 20 years, and more recently co-founded the Alibis for Interaction Conference for Professionals in Participatory Media. She's currently working on a blog called Participation Safety, which is all about current design practices and new ideas in LARP safety. Today's episode is a little bit long, and you're going to enjoy every minute of it. Let's jump right in. In your talk, the Nordic LARP talk, which is sort of an introduction to Nordic LARP, connect the kind of unique development of LARP in the Nordic countries to, you know, a certain kind of social safety net and a strong arts funding um, as being part of the culture, and also as the freedom to roam. And I think those first two things are kind of understandable for most people, but I think a lot of people who don't live in the Nordic countries uh, don't know what the freedom to roam is, or that, like, I forget the actual name of it. Yeah, I don't know what it's called in English either. Uh, it's called Allemansetten, it's in, in, in Swedish, the everyman's right. So what that is basically is that, that you have the right to use land. So even if somebody owns land, like if somebody owns forests, and like what you need to understand about the Nordic countries is that Finland, Sweden and Norway are very big countries. The populations are small, um, three, four, five million people. Sweden has about around 10, which is still like trivial, but the countries are actually huge if you look at a map. And a lot of that country is wilderness or forests or farmland. And I think the public right to use land, it, it applies to everything, but most specifically to, to forests. So that, that if, it, there's, if there's land, you're allowed to go there, you're allowed to, to, you're allowed to roam, you're allowed to pick, pick berries or mushrooms or, or camp, and you, you can't ruin stuff. You can use, and you can't use other people's property commercially, but you can absolutely spend time there and do things there. So if you're a teenager or a student uh, in the 90s and you've gotten into fantasy LARPing and you have a fair amount of time to do that and you don't necessarily have to work to support yourself either because because the government is giving you a grant and a very cheap loan to, to study, um, you can make some pretty ambitious fantasy game things in a forest which is on somebody else's land and of course I think if you're going to bring out like 400 kids into a forest for a few days you're going to need to talk to the landowner but really there's nothing to like fundamentally they're not they're they're not out to stop you and they're absolutely not going to shoot you uh, when you show up so that's something that's very sort of different I suppose to, to LARP cultures in a lot of other places and also even I mean I grew up in a city so that a lot of this stuff is pretty theoretical but but even there we had some some nature um, what are they called like preserves some some uh, protected areas oh, like a conservatory yeah, yeah. Uh, which would have some some sort of significant chunks of forest as well uh, so for people who are really into that very outdoorsy stuff uh, they could do that as well is that where you get started in LARPing is doing those kind of large-scale 
fantasy outside things. Uh, yeah, it's a weird story actually. I, I was in um, there was a, a, the beginning of the school year. There was a new girl in my class, and I'd only started role playing uh, the previous year. I mean, I'd always wanted to role play, but I didn't know any people I, people at all who who role played. I thought then it turned out that actually I I had some guys in my class who were role players, but of course they would never talk to me about this because I'm a girl and I would obviously not be interested. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were literally in high school before I figured that out. Uh, but the way I got into it was that, the sun, that uh, when I got to high school, there were some, some girls in my class who had been gamers for a really long time. And I started playing tabletop in their group. And then in our second year, uh, there was a new girl who had been an exchange student in Canada. And she'd been uh, LARPing there. But she was also in the SEA. And she was one of those uh, wonderful SEA freaks who will also wear the outfits like day to day. And, you know, her hands-on wonderful things. And I'm, I mean, I love that. I'm, I, I totally graduated high school in like one of her medieval dresses. So I'm, I'm not judging at all. Amazing. <laughs> but she was walking down the street in Helsinki and somebody came up to her and said, are you a LARPer? And she was like, I, I don't know. I don't think so. What is that? And then he explained. And then she said, oh, no. Oh, this? Like, no, no, it's SEA. But what you're doing, I've done that in Canada. So like, what a weird coincidence. And then he said, you should come to our meetup. And then she said, can I bring some friends? And then that's that's how it happened. Uh, but it's just a weird series of coincidences. Like, I might never have come across this hobby even if that lady who is now a, a medievalist professor in the United States hadn't been in my class when I was 16 years old. Amazing, amazing. So um, so what kind of... What, I mean, this would have been like the mid to late 90s, yeah, I guess? this would have been like, so... Uh, 95, the fall of 95. So, so uh, Clan Raven, which was our, our, our local club, uh, was pretty big at this time. They had like 200 members and they had these week, weekly buffer fighting uh, sessions where people would go to practice in these lovely ruins that we have um, on an island outside of Helsinki. So we'd go there every Wednesday with our buffer swords and fight, run down from school to get the, the specific course. ferry and then uh, stay until the last ferry and come back again. And I think I went to two or three of those or something like that. And then I signed up to a LARP without even knowing what it was, really. But I got right. to borrow some gear, so I got on a bus and went to some another a castle ruin outside of, like, far away, like two hours away, probably. And they'd said that, <laughs> they'd said that, well, you know, and I play like, a wanderer who is coming to the village or whatever. And they say, oh, you just walk up to the castle and ask for a place to stay and they'll give you the, a place to stay. And in the 90s, actually, transparency wasn't the big thing. So, of course, the first thing that happens is that I get to that gate and it's really late at night because, of course, the game start is always late and they don't let us in. So I'm like, what? what? So now what, what do oh I do? I'm like, oh, fuck, I have nowhere to sleep. I'm in this place with these strangers. I'm supposed to play this character, you know, which wasn't much of a character because it, in those days, I mean, but I, I didn't know what to expect. And, and But then I turned around and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to fo- sleep outside and I have literally no equipment for this. And then I turn, out, turn around like this on, this on this drawbridge thing and there's this weird rustling sound and there is literally a satyr standing in front of me, <laughs> which I then realized, oh, it's this guy that I know, but he was wearing these amazing like fur pants and like horns and his big role player hair was out and and his little beard mm-hmm. and he was just doing this whole like very physical playing so but it, i like it, i had that i had like two seconds of going like oh, what the actual like an actual satyr <laughs> um and then that was it like that was it i remember nothing else of that game but that's those first like two minutes it's like terrible disappointment and like they organize our lives and 
misunderstanding and like of course I should have brought my own sleeping bag I'm such an idiot but yeah yeah wow and but then the magic you know and the magic just yeah, like yeah. still even now 20 what one years later feels like an amazing thing yeah and you still remember that moment yeah no I, and I mean and then you know at, at that time it's weird but like we would when we when you got into this there would be so many games so you could go to a LARP you know and, and big urban things and some vampire I didn't play a lot of vampire but it was always available and sometimes we'd go to like 20, 30 games a year or more even. Wow. And I don't even understand now how that's possible because, you know, and still making good grades and all of that stuff and being in bands and being in musical education, like all of these other different things that I was also doing. Uh, but like, I don't know, 16-year-olds are on some completely different like watch. And then it was just a culture that was really sort of uh, inviting. And, and it was a good mix already then of of these people who were, who were running the world and, and doing all the writing and the organizing were very old and mature. They were like, some of them were like 19 or 23. <laughs> right. um, and basically I went up to them. I was in a Swedish language school and we were all playing in Finnish. And I went up to them and said, pointed at the map of this fictional continent. I said, up here north where it says Vikings, is anybody doing anything with that? And they're like, no. And I said, can I have it? I'd like to make some LARPs in Swedish. And they said, yeah, sure knock yourself out. Very egalitarian organization. So me and my some classmates got together and started organizing LARP. So I think I probably made my first game the following, started making our first LARP before Christmas, I think. And, and the following spring we ran it. And then, wow. and then we'd run like one, two, three uh, relatively big games a year wow. while doing, well, while being in high school, while doing all these other things. And I don't like, I don't know how that happened even, but I'm very pleased. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm still pretty like productive, and I do a lot of things, and I do a lot of LARP stuff, even though I work a lot as well. And so now more and more, it's the same. Like now, a lot of the LARP stuff feels or is integrated into my my job stuff now. Or I feel like everything I learn from the LARP community and and from especially the LARP safety stuff or all the experience design things that I'm also doing professionally come out of game design, basically. It's just saying, oh, like, the rules are the same or the tools are the same, even if we apply it to other things than, than games. The real world works pretty much the same. So, like, it, it hasn't been a bad investment of time. It's been super productive. But, oh, man, like, I think my parents have acknowledged that this year. <laughs> well, what's, I mean, what's the general kind of perception of LARP where you are and in your country? Like, is it that accepted or is it still kind of mysterious to people it's a bit of both so in the 90s it was a really big popular hobby because because our youth clubs are so organized and especially in sweden the government has this idea that that the way you train people for democracy is that you organize them in in um, these uh, associations like in small ngos and the minimum size for for that legally is four people because like oh, you need some number of people for the board uh, but you, if you're five people you can your club can be organized like legally as a small independent association mm. and then they would give you some automatic money every time you meet if you have like a formal meeting with minutes and all of that stuff so that you're practicing your democracy skills the government would give you in Sweden at that time some small amount of money which was a trivial amount of money but over time but they'd give you more for each member but also over like the more you or for each meeting you would get this and and if you were a role playing group like even if you were a tabletop group you, you'd be five people oh, wow and every time you played that could be a meeting if you just did the minutes so you could fund buying expansions through this 
So this is a really strong motivator for Swedish teenagers yeah. to organize themselves in gaming clubs. So still, I think Sverok, which is the role-playing association, which then, of course, also organized all the LARPers when that happened. It's, so there's like scouting and football and, and the gamers are the three big organized national on the national levels. It's a hierarchical thing. And then the money comes from the government and it filters down into these organizations. Right. But that actually trains young people in all of these skills. In Finland, I mean, the, Finland and Norway and Denmark didn't have these monetary rewards, but, but we did have similar, similar access to these structures where people who, who were minors can do things like, like um, sign contracts when they do it through these organizations. So you can rent venues and you can do stuff that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do as a kid. And that, I think, trained a lot of, lot of the organizational skills that then also helped the community to run these big events and, and be good at making conventions and all of, all of those things that have, have also been useful. But that also means that, there's, that because there's, there was always these, these formal structures, I suppose that helps a lot with the, with the legality and the visibility. And when all the moral panics happened, we had these national organizations that could go out and say all of these things in your report are factually wrong. And you'd, you'd have all of these like really passionate, really passionate teenagers, you know, who love role playing, who get so offended. Like you can actually organize people to, to call the papers when, whenever there's things that are factually wrong. You know, they will get those calls every time because people feel so strongly about this. So I suppose, I don't know, like in Denmark still, it's a big kids hobby buffer fighting. Uh, like people will, parents will take their kid, kids out on a Saturday and, and leave them at a fighting club. And then they'll, the kids will run around and beat each other with buffer swords and say, oh my God, it's like World of Warcraft, except it's real. And parents can have some grown up time, uh, you know, yeah. for a few hours. And then hours. your kids are exhausted and they sleep. So it's a win-win. <laughs> Um, yeah. And in the other Nordic countries, it's pretty well known. Like the word is known, the verb is known um, as well. So, but it's, it's well known, but it's still, I mean, of course, some people, you know, the farther away you are from geek culture, the likelier you are to laugh at it. But I mean, geek culture is pretty main, mainstream now. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You know, you mentioned all the kind of um, the organizational work and the organizational skill that goes into a lot of especially large scale LARPs. I don't know if it's so similar to what we do every day. I don't know. Why is it still such like kind of a niche activity or are people kind of LARPing without realizing it? One of the things I've come to realize is that in a way, the word role playing is a little bit unfortunate. I mean, I understand the historical reasons why that's what it is, because a lot of what we're doing is character play. So, so you can make a distinction between the social role and, and the fictional character. So we have this idea, like in our real lives, this construct that we have a personality um, and I, a lot of people who know about this stuff will tell you that, of course, we don't. And, and that's also a completely fluid thing. And it's more like a story we tell ourselves, that this idea that we have some kind of coherent identity. But at least we can agree that we have that idea and it's pretty strong. And then, and then we have this idea of pretend play or, or, and also acting in our culture where like you, you, pretend, you, act, you, you try to immerse yourself into the actions and or psychology of this other character who has some other kind of background and goals and, and stuff than you do. And that's permitted to do in some contexts and not permitted to do in some other contexts. So it's socially acceptable to, to do it on stage, but if you do it in a story or lying, yeah. But then role play, obviously, or like shifting roles is, is something that we do all the time. And I, I think that what happens to a, a lot of people who are game designers, in particular role playing game designers, where the idea of role taking or character taking is so central that we, we start to see 
all of the world uh, in these layers and to say, oh, see, oh, like you become, you get, it becomes visible to you, it becomes legible to you to say, oh, like I'm really uncomfortable in this situation. I'm being forced into this role that I can't, I can't perform what is being asked of me in this social situation and so on. Um, and I come from Finland, which is a culture that does not have small talk like, at all. Right. At all, culturally, we do not have small talk. We have big conversation, and then we have like awkward talk, and then we have silence, and those are the categories that we have. Um, so parties are really difficult. So when I moved to Sweden, um, and then later to England, I and Denmark. Oh my God, I've, I've just had to learn so much about like how to function in those kinds of social environments where you're meant to talk to strangers and and all of those things. And and that has made it extra visible, um, I think, to me. But but there's something that that it, like intuitively, I think people in our culture understand that character taking is a powerful. Like the, the idea of, of pretending to be somebody else, taking on another name and, and taking on other actions, that it's a big, powerful, like it's almost a taboo because it's so connected to lying, I think. And it's weird, it's weird because we're so comfortable with, with changing our behavior in every other way, as long as we still sort of keep it within these limits of, of what we understand to be like us. Right. And then we have this special... Um, areas where there's this overlap where the where those where you're allowed to do so there are certain magic circles in society like hen parties is an example that i always use or or like the concept in in america culturally the idea of of las vegas like you go to vegas right and and what happens there stays there it stays there you're allowed to do these specific things or if you're you know i mean if you're if you're a burner i mean burning man has very much this this idea as well you go there and you can literally like in burner culture burner culture i don't don't know if you've been but like you're literally a lot of people have a burn like apply a name like you you take on another name and a personality and and it's not role playing per se but you're this other person that you can go there and live as um this alternative version of yourself year after year after year and that's very similar to to larping in some ways even though it's constructed culturally in a in a different way and sometimes you'll do that but you'll still use your own character background so to speak <laughs> uh, for instance but that's still i mean and that's you know to some people that's considered super suspect and to some people the idea of 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 going to a festival and and behaving very differently from your every, everyday life is uh, completely acceptable because then then that that idea of the of the of that ritual border around the event is so strong. Yeah. So culturally, we have this understanding that well, if it's if there are limits, like if you know when it's when it begins and when it ends, if you know when the play ends, it's it's acceptable. If you can see somehow like a geographical limit to this thing, it's fine. And I feel like this is really tied into a lot of what you've said about alibis. Um, for any of our listeners who don't know, how would you define an alibi in the context of experience design? Yeah, so um, the alibi is the thing, an alibi is, a, is an object or a rule, uh, typically, that will allow you to try a behavior or to do something without the, the normal social consequences. So, for instance, an instruction is an alibi. Uh, if, if we're in a room and there's a person of authority there who says, now you must speak to each other, introduce yourself to each other and tell yourself like your latest dream that you can remember. That's not something that we would normally do with strangers, but we get very strong alibi because this person in, in, in this teacher or this, this lecturer just told us told us to do this thing. 
So we're permitted to do it, and in fact we're expected to do it, and that gives us alibi to break this very strong existing norm of don't attack random strangers with your dreams, for instance. Right. Um, and and anywhere, and you can think you can apply this to bigger little things. So so at a party you want people to to dance. So you wouldn't have like where the dancing happens. You, one of the fact, one of the social factors, one of the rules controlling that is embarrassment. Uh, so you want to make sure that that it's, there's not too much light in the room where the dancing is happening. Like, so mood lighting is very much about like allowing people to dance without feeling embarrassed. Like you want to be able to see each other because it's cool, but not in too much detail. So because if you can see my sweat and like my discoordination, <laughs> then I don't. Then I'm not comfortable dancing. <laughs> Like, what is the thing that will make me comfortable doing that thing? And of course, one of the big alibis is, is role-taking, uh, or even indeed character-taking, which is an even, even stronger alibi. Uh, and play is a really strong alibi in our culture, of course. So, so if it's just a game, like if, you're, if we're only playing, then we're allowed to do things that we wouldn't normally find uh, as acceptable. I feel like every, every like, like you say, it's really connected to play, and I feel like every game kind of requires or, or gives an alibi to do whatever behaviors are like outside of kind of people's mundane behaviors. But how do you as an organizer, as a designer, know what behaviors are going to be generated by which alibi? Well, often it's, it's sort of the other way around. So, so I think when you want to generate behaviors, a lot of that stuff is about, is about adding like restrictions and incentives, like just basic game design mm -hmm. stuff. You, you have some kind of landscape, like you have this geographical space and that has some qualities like you maybe have a room and then you set the chairs in a, in a specific way to just give a, like a really simple example. And you have a time frame for this thing. So there's some kind of dramaturgy that you've envisioned in your mind and you organize the events or whatever input you do in a specific order to, to generate certain kinds of actions. But very often alibi is about, is about sort of removing restrictions in a way. So, so like, what is it? I want them to do this thing. And then you just have to think, like, if I were in this situation, would I actually do that thing? Um, here's this buffet. Like, it's so, it's so much easier to think of in, like, real-world example. Like, mm -hmm. here's, here's the, we're serving these cakes at this thing, and everybody's milling about because nobody wants to be the person who cuts the first piece. <laughs> right. So, like, if, so if you want to, like, you have to be, you have to make it, like, so, and why is that? Like, what is the social, what are the norms that control people's behavior here? Uh, and then, like, how can we make it easier to do that thing? So if you want to generate a certain certain situation, you want to give people incentives to do something, but then you also want to make sure that you're not simultaneously undermining undermining them by, by something else happening. Like, So if one person um, goes into a square in a city and takes off their clothes, that's a crazy person, right? And if two or three people do that, then it's maybe like a hen party and if 12 people do <laughs> that kind of maybe some kind of sports yeah or yeah it could be a demo or like if they look very happy maybe some sports team has just won some kind of victory maybe that maybe that's super nordic uh, no, no, in, in canada you know when certain hockey teams win or lose stuff does happen <laughs> that kind of thing yeah you know exactly exactly i mean that's yeah maybe it's just a cold climate thing like maybe that's like yeah, or like it's summer. We could be naked. Let's be naked. I don't know. Right. The summer's <laughs> only going to last so long. We got to take advantage yeah. of it. Yeah. But there's some kind of cutting point. Like there's a there's a point where if everybody in the square 
has their so there was there's this artist I can't remember his name I think it's a man who wa- travels around the world and takes like literally fills squares with naked people like people mm-hmm. volunteer to be in his art and then they go there like two thousand people and they take off their clothes or leave them somewhere close by and they go and stand in this space and then he takes these art pictures of these these like landscapes of just naked people just standing looking normal but naked um, and. And if you happen to walk past, this very often happens at like four in the morning because you need to have no, no traffic there. But if somebody happens to walk past, there's this point where you're like, well, like who is the norm here? Because clearly if I walk past and my clothes are on and, and there are 2,000 people there and they're naked and it's clearly intentional, I think I would have a very strong urge at that moment to maybe just like, to you know, to at least start unbuttoning something so that they can think that I'm like, you know, participating because I would be the weird one. So, so like fundamentally, Alibi is about like, how can the thing that I want people to do, how can I make that not weird? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want people to do this. Okay, yeah. So now I see what you mean by working backwards. I want people to do this weird thing. What are the things that will allow them to do it? And sometimes the, the thing, the weird thing we want them to do are very often, like as game designers, the things we want them to do is like, I just want them to engage with curiosity and playfulness with this thing where often I don't want to actually give them all the information. Like I, I want to have some mystery in a lot of games. Obviously we want them to be able to unravel or explore something. Um, and that's sort of, so you, you need to make that, you need to make those contracts on some other level. Like they need to trust you. You need to promise certain things and then you need to deliver everything that you promise, but you need to, to allow this idea that if I, if I dare to engage with this, I will be rewarded. And then you should obviously also deliver on it because I think people who go to, I mean, there are also people who go to LARPs, for instance, and have a terrible time mm-hmm. and, and who never quite get it or like who never quite stop feeling embarrassed. Um, and then there's something that's also obviously that has to do with their culture from outside of the thing. That's the second thing. So if you're in a community where role playing is already normal, the moment you're doing it, you're going to accept that this is like this is the, what we're doing here. If you're from somewhere where it's a very suspect activity, I think you're going to wear you're you're going to be looking through the glasses of your peers or your parents or your mm-hmm. cool jock friends or whatever, <laughs> you know, and uh, and and keep seeing that even while you're enjoying yourself, you're going to be it's going to be like a guilty pleasure for a good while before it becomes a genuine a genuine mm-hmm. pleasure. Um, so that's the other. I guess big thing that I'm talking about is that like my my insight is that a lot of this stuff happens before the event like before the runtime of the game or before the party starts actually when you set the expectations and and you create these often very subtle things like you know again if it's your birthday party you send out an invitation of some kind and you have some language and you or a header picture in the, your Facebook event and and you give some instructions so the people will know what kind of a party is this. Is it going to be formal or not? And sometimes you tell them specifically a dress code. But very often people don't actually tell us specifically a dress code. They, they tell, you know, you're meant to bring drinks. And then maybe there's some secret culture about what, which drinks are okay. You know? right, and, yeah. But you won't find out until you get there. And is this a house where people take their shoes off or not? You know? right. <laughs> and, and a lot of that stuff, can. By, when I'm there, that can make me super awkward if I feel that I'm doing the wrong, slightly the wrong things all the time. Uh, so so then a lot of before you can get to the part where you construct the alibi you also have to make people feel safe um so they have to feel like oh i am in like i am in the right place it's okay that i don't know everything mm-hmm. stuff will reveal itself to me um because <laughs> 
I know there's a lot of criticism of, of Maslow's, uh, py- what is called the hierarchy of needs. Oh, yeah, yeah, the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. The pyramid, yeah, it's, yeah, there's problems, but... <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah. fundamentally, like, people need to be physically comfortable, like, in, if you're making an event, like, don't let them yeah. be cold, don't let them be too hot. And then the next, and almost the next thing is, like, you want to be seen and accepted, like, you need to know that you're... Mm-hmm that what you're doing is okay right and then and you need to know that before you can be like you need to you need to belong to the herd so to speak before mm-hmm. you can be brave you need first you need to be safe and then you can be brave and experimental and try this thing or playful or or all those other those other things and and I know it's weird because in game design we're so focused on on like the very top level stuff which is like when you're already there when you've already come come and you've already opted into the whole thing and you've bought your ticket and you've done your preparation and you're you've showed up on site and the game starts then what happens and of course that's super important but also my in my experience a lot of the failures tend to happen before and they tend to be about expectation management or like just poor communication about the rules or or the fiction or whatever right in your keynote at um at living games uh on opt-in opt-out design you made this really interesting distinction between uh, being safe and feeling safe. So, what what is the difference between those two things, and what are, what are the sort of functions that each of those two conditions serve? Being safe has to do with the sort of lo- the fundamental lowest level things. That, so, so safe as in as the opposite of of danger, or being in danger, or being sort of harmed. For instance, uh, you want to be safe from harm, and you want to be safe from from danger. And the gray areas of that is like you also want to protect people from like unnecessary risk. A lot of things that are very unlikely to happen, you might still want to have some safety procedures in, in, in place for, because when, when they do happen, it's terrible. And that can be like fire. You know, and a lot of this stuff we take for granted, like fire safety, very important, you know. And, and if you make any kind of event, obviously, you think about that. But also it could be things like sexual predators that, that a lot of our communities have been speaking about in the last few years, because, I mean, as in at geek communities, for instance. Uh, because there's a much higher awareness, and those are real dangers. The stuff that you have to take take into account, for sure. Um, so that's real. That's what I'm considering sort of real safety, feeling safe or being safe. Sorry, but then there's feeling safe, which is about this idea of of this emotional, like fundamental baseline security, or this feeling of belonging and and trust, uh, and everything that has to do with that. Like, am I safe? To like, do I feel confident? in this environment that I won't be judged for participating in this thing that everybody else is doing. That's that, Because already there, it's the baseline. You'd think, I mean, and some people don't have this, you know, some people are so confident or privileged even that they feel like wherever they go, obviously that's where they're meant to be. But for a lot of us, that's just not how it works. So even though some people are doing something and it's really nice, you know, you're going to have somebody standing on the, out, you know, the outside of it, feeling like they're not allowed to do that thing that everybody else is enjoying. So, so like the first step of, of making people feel safe is like, how can I get them to engage with this thing? Of course, that has to be a choice. And I think it's a nice design when, when you make anything to say that sometimes, you know, it's also like it can also be a valid way of participating to just stand on the side and, and look on. Like if you go to a rock gig, you're going to have some people who are going to be jumping up and down and then you're going to have some men, you know, with their arms crossed who are nodding. In Finland, we call these guys the rock police. And you're going to, you know, are going to be standing there judging me. And, and because they don't want to dance, like they don't feel like they can dance, but that doesn't mean they're not enjoying the gig. Like they might be totally enjoying the gig, but, but their way of doing that is nodding, you know, a little bit to the music with their arms crossed. And that's fine, you know, and that's a valid way of, like in that space, both of those things are cool. But I'm thinking, like, would it, 
do they secretly do some of the rock police secretly want to be in the mosh pit like do they want to you know and maybe talk to somebody and could we design that space in a way where they would feel like they're allowed to do that mm-hmm. without embarrassment and i think in that thing specifically it might some of this has to do with gender and of course and all uh, other kinds of things especially if it's like we dancing instead of like jumping up and down in an aggressive way that a lot of guys will feel like we dancing is not for them so then if you want to design against that you're going to have to work so hard because the social norms that control those behaviors are are so harsh if you're doing something that's less culturally structured like like luckily the one of the good things about having about designing games and especially designing these analog physical role-playing games is that that there aren't all of these really super strong cultural scripts in in society at large about like what is the correct way to LARP or like what is what kinds of things happen at this I mean people have some ideas but they're so far off that like they're completely irrelevant to to our actual (laughs) practice Um, so people will have some ideas that come from their local LARP culture uh, but, but basically especially with beginners like if you can get them in the room you can sell them on almost anything being LARP. Right, right. Because because that's culturally allowed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they feel safe. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but, the thing is, but you have to design for it. Like, it doesn't happen. It never happens automatically. And I don't think it happens automatically in any context. Um, in terms of designing for, you know, not just like safety, but like you say, bravery and curiosity and getting people to a place where they're open to trying new things and open to behaving differently... Um, how does that happen in a physical environment and how does that happen in a social environment? Like, I feel like we have some sense of how physical environments are designed, even if we can't always control for them. But how do you design a social environment? What are the tools? What are the, how does that work as a medium? So in a social environment, uh, a lot of that has to do with power. So a lot of it, ha- and so, so if we think that the, the core question of like, what am I allowed to do here is like, what is the norm? What is normal behavior here? So somebody dis- decides that. Like who in the, in the social environment that you're in, like at any moment, like who is the decider of what is the correct way of doing things? Like even here, we're just two people. But if, if you give me an instruction, because this is your show, I'm going to follow it. I never thought of you that. Know? You're so, so right. So you make the rules <laughs> in this social situation. And then, but then actually, because I work professionally <laughs> with radio as well. So I, I have a lot of I'm very comfortable in these situations and I'm trying to be incompetent as well to, to allow myself to be as rambly and to not take responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. for being pithy. And I'm, I, I would like to apologize at this moment for all, to all of the listeners for this because now I'm thinking maybe I should have taken more responsibility about being like pithy <laughs> and giving clear answers and not thinking aloud. <laughs> but but, but, it's, but there, like, even here, there, there's that. And, and now, actually, I'm realizing, as I t- said this out loud, that by like, referencing that I have this professional authority now we i have changed the social dynamic in this room Mm -hmm. um or which is not even a room because we're not even on the same continent but weirdly it works it still works Yeah, we're still inside the same social environment social bubble yeah and now i think it's more like so now that made it more even probably Mm -hmm. and now so so this is like this, this is a micro example of course but, but there are some control questions, and it might, we should link to all my talks because oh, I'm gosh, very yeah. good at like, just picking this stuff out of my brain. But, but there are some control questions that you can ask yourself to think about like what the social environment. So, so who makes the rules here is, is another one. But if you're thinking about it from the participant's perspective, it's like, okay, who can I be in this place? Uh, what am I allowed to do in this environment? Like, so, so it's about agency as well. Uh, what kinds of choices uh, can I do? How much can I affect this? The how do I feel uh, socially in this environment? Do I feel 
do I feel welcome? Do I feel like part of this thing or am I, am I on the inside or am I on the outside? And it's the questions for the physical environment are, are very similar. So maybe for the physical environment, I would ask myself, what is it possible for me to do in this space? What is, what, is it in, what is intended for me to do in this space? Because you can read that as well. Or do I understand what I am meant to be doing in this space? And quite often the answer is no. Like, where should I go? Like, what am I supposed to be doing next? And quite often, like, it's just go to a train station and you'll realize that the physical environment, even when the, the sole purpose of it is to guide people to be in certain spaces, we're not great at building for that. So, of course, it's not like it's not embar- embarrassing that people who make parties or LARPs, for instance, also aren't great at that. This is a big problem. But, but these are also solvable problems, right? So in, the, so in the physical environment, I will ask myself, like, what am I meant to do, for instance? Or what can I, what is it physically possible for me to do? And in the social environment, I will ask things like, what am I allowed to do? What do I feel comfortable doing right. in this space? And then and th- those questions, like those answers, that's where, you're, where you find the, those sort of limits or the things where the alibi design is probably needed to counter those things. But then, but then you can solve a social challenge with a physical change, for instance. You, so you can take, you, you realize that, well, socially now it's embarrassing for me to do this thing, so we can turn the lights, lights out. For instance, right, yeah. super simple example, and then people can't see me dance, and then we're fine. Right, right. Yeah, I have a friend who used to. Um, uh, she loved going out dancing. wasn't a big drinker, but she said, "I always need to have a drink in my hand when I'm on the dance floor because then I feel like if I'm dancing like an idiot, people are just yeah, they see the cup and they're like, oh, okay, she's not a bad dancer. She's just drunk." <laughs> I have an example that I always say I have so if you want to start a dance floor uh, at your party and and you know that's because again it's embarrassing like the, the first the, to be the first people on the dance floor mm-hmm. uh, but everybody has some friend like one or two friends who are like the crazy dancing friends who will dance under any circumstances mm-hmm. like if they're just allowed to dance they will dance mm-hmm. and they're going to go on the dance floor and they're going to dance insanely so you can ask for those people if it's your birthday party you can ask that their gift to you would be that when you want to start the dance floor you're going to ask them to dance and then they're going to dance and then they'll already be there embarrassing themselves and they don't care Mm -hmm. and then it'll be safe for everybody else and say can i ask for you from you for my birthday can i have 20 minutes of your time on the dance floor so other people will feel safe to dance also and they will probably say yes because they want to be there anyway right and, and I can see how that's applied to LARP design, because then it says on your character sheet, you know, one of your moves or one of the things that you can do or something you're inclined to do is to be the first person to do X, Y, Z. Yes, but that has to be possible for the player as well. Mm. So, so because the player might still be embarrassed, and then it doesn't matter what the character wants to do. So it needs to be possible. But, but if you design a group of four people... Like again, like where's the point where you're where you're where it looks intentional? Right. Not like I've misunderstood something and I'm an idiot. Like okay, but here are four people doing this synchronized dancing. Okay, now we're talking. <laughs> like clearly, actually, that's a bad example because that's going to make it harder for other people to join in. Well, but but I think but I think the point you're making is about diffusion, right? Like diffusion of responsibility. If we all start doing this thing, then then even if it's really weird, it's only like one fifth as weird because there's five of us doing it. Or power again, so that's that's still there. Mm-hmm. So I think in Hamlet, uh, there's a, in in the Hamlet LARPs that been run last year, and and there's an earlier version of that that's uh, almost fifteen years old. Um, there's a, the first act is a, is a party, a very decadent party, and there's a point relatively early in the game where the party needs to get started, 
and that's a lark that has that has served historically real alcohol, for instance, which really helps, obviously. But then there are some other concerns that come with that, and so that you then have to also think about. But if you want to make people, you know, more brave about dancing, obviously that's a good thing. But the king says, Claudia says, you must now dance at my wedding. And then the characters, like he's this despot, like people will have to dance whether they want to or not. Like they will dance, they will cry and they'll dance. <laughs> and that, that also works. So you can use the character authority assuming that the higher that status in the game works. Right. And again, making status work in a game is a whole other like design thing. But assuming that you have managed to design status that actually works, then you can use that to to trigger certain events. And then again, like once everybody is, is dancing, of course, it's nicer game design if it's also a great party. So you would want the music that starts playing at that moment to be very nice. Right. I've been at a lot of fantasy games, actually, back in the day, in the, I mean, in the olden days, when people would say, you know, there's some kind of something important happens. And then the baron or whatever, whoever has like that kind of authority says, let there be music and dancing. And then there's this terrible, awkward moment when 150 people look at each other and go like, does anybody know off game? Like, does anybody know any songs? I, like, because people wouldn't necessarily in this village obviously everybody would know right. and people would have like flutes and stuff but at the LARP no, no, there weren't necessarily any musicians right. this is why like, LARP musician is a thing like there, there are people who only go to LARPs and play songs because somebody's always going to say that and it's so satisfying <laughs> to be that guy you know who takes out his guitar and just like well as it happens <laughs> you know tra la la <laughs> Yeah, that would be very valuable. That's why you need to get those SCA people. They'll bust out like a lute yeah. or, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody like with a fiddle. That's yeah. A, yeah. That's yeah. Um, what are your feelings on uh, consensual game design? Is is consent a tool or, or is consent an important um, framework when you're talking about LARP design? Uh, yes and no. But before I answer that, I need to know what is consensual game design because I'm not sure I've heard that before. From, from what I've heard, it's a mode of thinking about game design where um, people knowing what they are going, what is going to be asked of them or what is going to happen to them is a really, really like primary uh, design goal. So mm -hmm. what you would call like informed consent, people knowing what they're signing up for yeah. and having the ability to, to, to say yes to it or to say no. So let's see, headline thoughts. <laughs> Obviously, that's super important. So, so I think in like a good baseline, a good choice for any kind of participation design is what I call opt-in, opt-out design. So you make active choices to participate. Mm -hmm. And then because actually informed consent is, is impossible to achieve, especially in forms that have emergent content like games, like role-playing games. And also because it's so difficult for us to explain like what games, like we can say so many things about the game, but we know from experience that we can't actually explain what it's going to be. Even if we told people like beat by beat everything, if they could see the whole design, there are transparent games that where you can actually literally can read everybody's character. You can do all that. You still don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. And you don't know like, how am I going to feel on that day? And, and all of those things. And there's so many contextual things that can change. So it's not enough to make the choice and it's certainly not enough to have made the choice to maybe sign up for a game like months before or like when you sign up for a convention and you click in some box based on three line description that's not actually informed consent at all yeah. so so that's that but you can opt in but then you have to pro progressively opt in uh, all the time during the game and there has to be and there are moments where it's good practice to allow people to opt out in different ways that don't undermine the flow of the game so in that sense i suppose like i'm completely on board with consensual game design. However, two things. 
one, I'm not actually a fundamentalist about this. Like I am, I, I like fundamentally, I strongly believe like this is the smart thing to do. And it's typically the right thing to do if you make games for people you don't know, for instance. But that's not to say that, that other ways of doing this are, are wrong. I mean, so like design, game design, like any technology or even, even analog, I mean, even designing social environments and, and rooms, all that stuff is also a technology. And that doesn't actually, I mean, there is something inherently manipulative in, in making people do things, you know, in encouraging people in behaviors. And I think it would be very naive to say that if we just, that there is some level, like there's some line, like it's evil until some, some point on this ab- abstract line and then it becomes good. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's all tools and, and you're going to, you are always in charge, you as a designer as an organizer of this event you're always in charge of how you deploy these tools and you there may be reasons for you to use other practices than consensual game design however you should probably tell people then like at least that right they should know at least that you you should at least tell them that you're gonna that like one of my goals here is to screw with your mind or whatever it is uh, whatever the reason is, yeah, you should do that because because they're definitely unethical games for sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying, but but every like there are no design tools that like on, that on their own out of context can be judged as either like good or bad. I'm, I'm sure there are situations where every kind of design is completely valid mm-hmm. relative to the goals. So in that sense, like even though I, I preach often about design and I'm writing this book, which is a lot about like how to do this. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's just like the reason I want, I think that's important is that I want people to be able to play some pretty extreme games. Mm-hmm. You know, I want people to, I, I'm not of the school, like I want to forbid everything and or mm-hmm. I, I, LARPing is dangerous. I don't think LARP is particularly dangerous, but I do think that when people interact with each other, we're going to have all kinds of feels around it. Mm-hmm. And then also just not all people are nice. And I mean, there are all kinds of aspects here. Everything that's true in the rest of life is also true in LARP. And then... And then it would be very, um, we would be amiss not to have at least the same level of, of safety thinking as we do in, in our day-to-day lives when we're interacting uh, with strangers. But then, I mean, I also went to Burning Man, I mean, I, which is a place that has, where, is, where the whole safety culture is like, you are in charge of yourself. And if you break a leg, you're, you know, we have a helicopter that might get you to a hospital, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to pay what that actually costs, which is a fortune you know, climb off on the things if you want. But if you fall down and die, it's literally your own, like it is your own fault. Mm. And I'm also okay with that because you're, the, the opt-in there, like the choice that you make to participate in this is so um, strong. You have to, there's no way that you end up there not understanding these rules, right? Right. You don't, you don't accidentally no. wander into Burning Man. No. Yeah. No, you just don't walk into Mordor. So, and that's, I think that's completely valid also. Like it's, it's totally fine to make, you know, to, to do things that are super dangerous. But then, but then that has to like invite people that are interested in that thing specifically. Uh, so that's one thing where I, like, I, I worry. Like I've never even heard the term consensual game design until just now. And already I worry just because of I know how these conversations work and how the internet works, that there might be a fundamentalist tone around it. And I sometimes feel that both sides, like there's a side of game design that that wants everything to be dangerous. And then they look at some stuff that I write and they're like, oh, finally, somebody is saying that people who, who say LARP is dangerous, you know, they should just grow a spine. I'm like, no, that's actually not what I'm saying. But at the same time, some other people are like, well, 
all of this focus on safety is, you know, you just don't want us to make interesting games. Like, no, no, no. Oh my God, no. The games that I'm involved in making, some of them are very, very extreme. And by American standards, probably, probably wouldn't be legal to run them even. Mm. But it's, but then you, you have to design those structures where it's possible for people to feel, feel safe and also be safe but also feel safe while, while they're doing it. And, and to feel safe even when they are doing some things that are potentially, that are risky, not harmful, but, but certainly risky. But then also consent, like as a word, um, is problematic. It can be tied to sort of like a very contractual view of consent, of like, well, you said yes, you know, and therefore like, you know, you can't retract it. Or to assume that people can always know the consequences of everything that's going to happen. Yes. And yeah, no, exactly. And I, I mean, I literally had to look it up in a dictionary because I was talking with a lot of people who weren't native speakers. And as obviously, neither am I. And it does have these two meanings where where one is like, we agree to do this thing together. And the other is, I, I agree for this thing to be done to me. And I find very often, and I think now just recently with these discussions about this terrible rape cases you know mm. everywhere in the world but yeah. obviously the american ones are, are very present in 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 anglophone media so when people talk about consent in these contexts like what we need consent to do there's there are there's this baggage of this weird idea that that it's this sort of weirdly one-sided transaction i consent for this to be done to me and very typically i as a woman consent for mm. sex to be done to me or like or i have this there's this magical property called sex that i can choose to give away or it can be taken from me right. and then consent is somehow about the sort of management of that currency somehow and that's just like not I don't want to think like I think participatory things mm-hmm. should probably not be conceptualized like so like for me sex is very much about mutuality yeah. and you can be into other things obviously and that's fine but then you you get into those other things through a framework of mutuality and negotiation and, and you know and so I think consent in one of its meanings is great, you know, and mm-hmm. that's probably what we usually mean. But because there are all these other people who are using it to say, but you said you you said that it was OK for me to do this thing to you. Right. And therefore, so then it means that, you know, the gates are now open <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like you said, I could hit you. Like, yeah, no, but you hit me really hard. And, and then they'll be like, well, it doesn't matter how hard I hit you because you said I can hit you. Right. Whatever. Right. And w- whether or not that happens in a sexual context or at a role-playing game, that's actually super problematic because consent isn't, isn't like, then consent helps us, doesn't help us at all. So then it's negotiation, mm-hmm. which is more important. And there's a word that we've started to use now in the Nordic countries, like literally since the last, since Solmokota, in which was, I suppose, in like February, May, pretty recently. And on the last day, actually on the ferry back to Stockholm after after the event, I said, I said, I like, I was like, well, there's this thing. Like, we have to have another word. We can't. We have to have a word for for the kinds of rule systems that aren't really about safety, but they are about just like, for instance, like, so tools that you use to escalate and de-escalate intensity of play in a subtle way as you're playing, for instance. So we have these tools that are for checking in, like, are you okay, for instance. That would that's, that would qualify as a safety tool. Like, so like maybe somebody, is this person just like role-playing really well, or are they actually having an epileptic fit? If there's, I need a tool, I need a safety tool to be able to check on them. At this point, there's about 30 seconds of completely garbled audio in which Joanna relays a completely different anecdote that was a completely different situation. Scene missing. And that thing needs another word because that's not actually about danger. That's about co-creation. 
Um, and I spoke to a bunch of, of very smart people about this, and they all agreed that this that it is a separate thing. And then we threw around some names and I've forgotten all of mine luckily because they were all terrible but Christopher Turo who is a very wise man said you mean calibration and I was like yes yes oh my god yes calibrating that's exactly what it is so it's it's calibrating the intensity or calibrating the play style sometimes because you can have like mission drift you know between different groups in a LARP where you end up in sort of slightly different genres so even there it's not even about like intensity it's just about like your comedy gang is coming and you're the funny bards or whatever and we're having this really emotional moment. And there's that little negotiation that happens very subtly when we're figuring out what, what can we actually play, how can we interact without breaking each other's game at this moment. Um, and that's calibration as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, this this idea of calibration is really interesting and sort of like little hand gestures that, that people are developing or like kind of coded words and that kind of thing. There have been some meta techniques developed cut and break are like the most obvious one that are used for either safety or calibration or checking in uh, that that way to sort of like check in about something out of character that are then kind of become universal or people attempt to use them universally how useful do you think meta techniques that are not assigned to one particular game how useful do you think those are uh, they're potentially useful i mean they're very useful in the sense that they can travel from context to context so when, when we have new tools, obviously it makes sense to see, like, you know, I, 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 there, there's this hammer here. Are there any nails in this game? But there might not be nails in the game. And organizers are, I think it's really problematic, actually, if players are bringing in other techniques or other tools that we haven't agreed on because they, on the assumption that everybody knows this stuff because everybody does not know this stuff. So design for me is a lot about or is entirely about intentionality. So you have to make active choices. And, and the opposite of design, I've been thinking a lot about, like, what is that? What would that be? And the most obvious answer is that the opposite of design is tradition. So you you do something because that's how it's done. And and so you don't question your own assumptions. Norms is another answer, answer to that as well. But but these kinds of tools, when they're when they become a language that is... Um, transmitted through this sort of apostolic succession <laughs> from player to player, then it becomes traditional. But it's not necessarily, those aren't necessarily the tools that serve the goal of the game the best at all. Um, they might be short, like they might make people, they might, for instance, they might create false feelings of safety. It's very difficult. I mean, these are, these are real difficult things to speak about hypothetically. But that, so that's one thing. The other is that they can create actual danger because if I'm trying to use a cut rule, a cut word, a safe or a safe word that this that isn't present in this LARP, it's really not your fault if you don't know it. And then how can you know that I need to cut? And then of course it makes sense to have something like some point where it would make sense for me to just say off game, off game, off game or something. But there has to be some word. And actually, there are LARPs where people go to LARP who haven't LARPed before, where they nobody ever thinks to tell them the word off-game, or like to, to give them the conceptual tool of in-character, out-of-character. <laughs> and if you don't have a word for that, how do you communicate in a LARP that's not, you know, where which is in a naturalistic setting, that you're now no longer in character if you don't know that the thing that you have is called a character? So, and, and if the other person also doesn't know, it, it's, this is actually not a trivial problem. And it may sound like a really unlikely problem to people who feel very confident then because now we have this language and we're fluent in this language and we can we can calibrate between us so well in this language and we might actually get a little bit upset at organizers who don't allow us to use this language. And I think that's, I mean, I, I think players get to co-create so much 
but actually they don't get to do the design unless you know we're also valid that we decide that we're going to decide right, together that's a jam. you know we're yeah. going to all of the players are going to sit down together and we're going to jam about what techniques to use and then we're going to workshop them because if their actions you know just describing them is pointless everybody has yeah. to try like the cut rule only works oh, oh my god i was just playing at a larp in finland last week two weeks ago called halat hisar uh, which is a really intense political game uh, made by Palestinian and Finnish designers together. So it, it models basically the occupation um, in Palestine, but in this sort of parallel fictional history where there's a fictional nation called Euralia that, uh, that is uh, illegally occupying Finland. And then we're playing in the parts of, parts of the occupied territories and, and, and the, the game is set in this university environment and the university is trying to have a Tolkien conference, which is like an academic conference, and then there are some problems that have to do, like, what is everyday life like under these circumstances? And then, then that's what the game is about. And then it's also, there are many other themes like religious fundamentalism and homophobia, a lot of sort of problematic aspects in this, in this culture um, that are also present, the political fundamentalism as well, obviously. Um, and so it's very nuanced and very multifaceted and very intense and quite, quite violent. And there are these soldiers and like some torture, a lot of like very, very intense content. So obviously they, they've had some fantastic safety design. Uh, around this and I'm probably going to blog actually I'm, I'm going to ask them if I would be allowed to do like a case study of just explaining like everything they did to make it possible to play torture scenes for instance in a very naturalistic way to do that okay um, so and but again I'm saying like it's possible if you know what you're doing you can absolutely make do this and make it so that the players feel that this is something they want to experience even though it's not nice but in the workshops which were really good uh, they did something that I've never seen before. And as a result, I experienced something that I'm very embarrassed to admit. What I'd never seen before was that they realized that, well, Finns, you know, because of all of these social things, we haven't, we're not great at running workshops uh, because we don't actually like enforced play. Like there are a bunch of things where, where culturally Finnish LARP has not had a strong workshopping tradition, but this LARP specifically absolutely required it. So they flew in somebody from Norway who is really like a known authority on this, or two people actually, to run the workshops. And one of them stayed to play the game and the other person uh, the other person only came to Finland to, to do a, day, a full day of workshops with us to, to practice these things. The other thing is that they did, uh, they did do, um, <laughs> they forced us to, to practice workshop cut and break. And you know, I've been teaching LARP safety for a bunch of years now. And I've been saying in lecture after lecture after lecture after lecture, you have to workshop cut and break because if you've never done it, you don't know like it works. So they just divided us in pairs and then we had to escalate the situation by screaming or whatever until the other person would break or cut. And then every, both sides get to do this. And I did that and we played with this like dude that I don't know and, and uh, he was quite tall and quite like, and, and I, I felt like I was uh, super aggressive and it was very, very intense, very fast. And we started yelling at each other and then we broke break and, and cut. And I could have gone on a little longer, but I cut anyway. Like when he was physically, like I was almost falling over the table. I was like, ah. and then we cut. And then I realized... I don't think I've ever done that before. Wow. I have never cut before, wow. ever, in a workshop or in... A, because ever since we... And it, it feels like, is it possible? Like, is it... Because it would seem that I would have had to be... Sometime I would have had to, to go to LARP over the last 21 years that used these rules and also was competent enough because I go to a lot of very competently organized games that they would have also workshopped them. But I think I never have. 
Mm. And I've been teaching this for years and years. The good thing is, I also then needed to cut in the game for a completely trivial reason, having to do with the the torture people came to get me in the middle of the night and I wasn't actually wearing any underwear (laughs) under my pajamas and I wasn't entirely sure that I wasn't going to be asked to strip. Right. And anyway... If I don't wear a bra, like I don't, I can't. Yeah, like, I have enormous yeah. boobs. I can't even. Then yeah. it's like I can't LARP. If I don't wear a bra, I can't think about anything else and how uncomfortable that is. <laughs> so I had to cut and ask the soldiers to step out in the corridor so I could put some to yeah. put my bra on. I, I didn't tell them why, because that's the other great thing about the cut rule. Right. Is of course if you do it right, you're not asked. You're not allowed to ask people. Right. And I said, cut. I just need a moment with my clothes. I'll, you know. And they're like, totally fine. Blah blah blah. And they went out, and I put my shoes on as well. And you know, which was great because I ended up in a cold basement. So I was very happy that I wasn't barefoot. I was <laughs> so happy that I was wearing a bra <laughs> yeah. and also underwear. And actually, it turns out that I had filled in a form when at sign up. I mean, I remembered that I had where they asked specifically like a bunch of things, like if in you know, can we ask you to undress? Can we ask? What can we ask for? And I had absolutely checked that they can't ask me to undress. But I didn't remember that. Yeah. And that, I guess, like a good lesson, like months later, I don't remember what I put on the form because that was based on what I was feeling that day. But I cut. And I cut in, in an aggressive situation in the workshop. I'm very happy I did. I cut in a completely sort of embarrassment-based, comfort-based situation in the game. And I'm very happy that I did that um, as well. But it's like, you, you think that people know how to use these rules. Like, I thought I did, but I didn't actually. 21 years and I had no idea, you know. But I'm, I'm not, it's great. Everything I've been teaching about it is actually true. So, <laughs> so it's it's validation of all this theoretical stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, so if I had needed to cut in the torture scene, I would have been able to. And I, I actually, so the other thing is, I'm not a really good example of this because I I also have, because I've just been around for so long and I know, I will know most of the players I'm playing with often, or at least sort of casually, I'll, I usually, I probably would feel safe to cut anyway. And then one of the consequences of feeling safe is that often you don't need to. Like when you feel like you could, you never need to. And that's probably why I've never cut before. Right. Is I've been to a lot of games that use it, but I maybe never went to one that actually forced us to do it, us to do it in a workshop. And then it just meant I've been feeling safe, so I haven't actually needed it. But sooner or later, the time will come when I need it for some real reason, and I'm so happy to know now that I can use it. Yeah. Um, but but it's like the cultural knowledge is worthless. I guess it, just to tie back to your previous point, there it it is. It does have to be in a context where it's meaningful, and it has you have to practice, uh, or it doesn't mean anything. I think that's very very strong. Yeah, a strong statement to make. Yeah, make intentional choices. Yes, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and have them be meaningful choices, and be able to change your mind. You're working on a blog right now um, that you've just launched a Patreon for. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Participation safety. Yeah. Tell me about the goals of participation safety. Well, in a way, it's so that I can stop giving the lecture. <laughs> it started with some workshops that we did where, where I, w- I would be facilitating these big sessions with, like, I'd have a panel of people who know about this stuff at Knutpunkt, for instance, and then I'd have, like, 100 people in the room. And then we would have all of these big whiteboards and, and we would try to figure out, like, as a community, what do we know about LARP safety? What do we think we know? What do we know doesn't work? What do we suspect? That, what do we do out of tradi- for traditional reasons, but we don't actually know if it works or not? Like, it started like that. And then after a few years, it grew into this lecture room. Like, okay, on average, what, we've, what I've learned from us as a community is that we think this is true. Then that framework has generated some, some other things. But it's actually more than one hour lecture now, so... 
in a way, I want to write this down in a systemic, in a, an organized fashion so that I can then think about something else maybe for the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's like, that's my personal goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just structuring that work because writing a book takes forever. So a patron, you know, is really nice because I know somebody cares. Some people care. They like, they, they totally want to give me a dollar to read like the next thing. So, so that really helps. But I also think that there's such an enormous disparity of like awareness and knowledge of this stuff. And I don't actually think it's all that difficult. Like most of this stuff, like 90% of this stuff is you have to have a word for the thing. You have to, you have to be able to conceptualize it so that it becomes visible and legible to you. And then you can look at your own games and all of the other games you play and reality around you. And you can be like, oh yeah, oh, yeah no, of course that's how it works. And how would I solve this? Well, obviously I would do this thing. So it starts to feel really obvious. And so it's, it's relatively easy to, to get. And then you just practice it. Like then you will be practicing it actually. So you're going to automatically become better at it. So in in communities where all of the safety and consent, so to speak, stuff is done on tradition only, um, it's not visible. It's just you're going through these motions, but you don't know why. And some of them, the things that you think are for safety, are maybe not. They're probably not actually for safety, or they don't have any other. Per- they've, they've just become these rituals that you do. To tell yourself, for instance, that you're safe or that we're doing we're together here, but they still tell you very little about how people actually operate. So I I also just want to put that out there because just like I like games to be good and I, I want games to be able to be as intense or as totally chill, you know, as as the designer wants. And actually, this, there's this thing it ties back a little bit to what we we're saying before about like why I think it's it's bad to just blindly copy these these cultural tools from game to game to game. Uh, it's that it doesn't become elegant. So in design, obviously, there's also we also have this goal to use as few tools as possible. Like you, you want it doesn't you know complexity isn't a goal in itself. You know if you have a rule book, that's I think one of the things that we find so my community finds so baffling about a lot of German games, for instance, a lot of American games that you if you have to read 200 pages of rules to be able to play it. It can probably do some interest. It can have some interesting effects, but one of those effects is that it, it has this enormous barrier, and the the likelihood. And you're going to need these facilitators or people who remember the rules. Like you're going to need to insert that function into your game. So it, to me, it doesn't feel very elegant. And I'm not dissing that. Like I'm because you can do many things with that that you then can't do with these minimalist systems. Uh, for instance, very fair competitive systems. But if you say, well, actually, I'm not doing this, like my game is not about co- competition, it's about something else, it's about this collaborative uh, exploration of this story together, even though the characters might be very competitive and very hostile to each other, actually, the players are not. And then suddenly you can take out all of those rules, and then it's about like how little can I put into this, like how few strokes of my brush do I need to, to create this system where people... Will ge- which, that will generate this game that we want to create together. And then I think a lot of culturally Im- like rules and, and behaviors that are, that are brought in by the players in a, disor- in a disorganized fashion are going to bring noise into the system. They're going to distract from the overall design. Uh, and that's also, like, it's not, it is not beautiful from a game design perspective. If, if everybody like, brings in their own rules, you want them to bring their own creativity within the, the parameters that we agreed upon together. Right, and like you said, those those parameters and what each person is responsible for and can bring, yeah. you know, differ from game to game. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question about responsibility 
Yes. Um, in your alibis for interaction talk, you talk about the sort of the moral baggage that comes along with being the creator of a tiny little universe, right? Of a, a, a magic circle or a tiny society that has its own rules. What do you think are the responsibilities of an organizer? And what do you think are the responsibilities of a player coming into a game? The fundamental responsibility of an organizer is to is to communicate as well as humanly possible about what they're trying to achieve. And I mean, that's true anywhere, obviously, but, you know, you sell a product and you, people are making this investment of time and money. But in participatory events, it's extra important because you're, you're asking so much. You're asking people to come and complete this thing together that you've created or you've created a framework and then their agency or their their um, power to affect the outcome might be relatively small or it might be enormous or or you know it you, it might even be so that they were going to create actually most of it together that might be the framework that you you've set up but whatever it is you're asking them to bring something on, of themselves and put themselves on the line and play together and that's like an enormous ask already in our in our society so so they have to have some kind of like that opt-in like the original their understanding of what they're gonna, what they're taking part in, has to match reality relatively closely, uh, or they're gonna be disappointed. I mean, a, it's not gonna work. Like, it's, you're not gonna, you might end up with something interesting, but it's not gonna be the thing that you intended, even, even you know, closely, even remotely, I suppose, in English. But the other thing is that like people's expectation also like sets up, obviously, like whether they're disappointed or not. So, so it's also in your interest. And like players who come to the thing, if if it's not for them, like they're gonna ruin it for everybody. They're not gonna like it, you know. All of that. So also for that reason, for your selfish reasons, you have to do this, because <laughs> um, otherwise you're just gonna see, seem like you're a really bad designer, and you may have made a, an, a great thing for some completely other players, you know. Uh, right. So that's uh, that's so that's the core responsibility there. So like, what's the thing? And the other thing you have to be able to, there's a contract implicit or even explicit. It could be explicit, like a verbal agreement of some kind or even a written agreement between you, the participants and the organizers, which about things like division of labor, for instance, and 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 creative control and to, to somehow communicate like how much ownership, like once it starts, what can I affect? What can't I affect? And people will have these ideas about that, and and that doesn't mean you can't have a, like you, you can you don't have to give them spoilers, but they have to have a feel of like what kinds of actions are even meaningful for me to do in this game, uh, so that like so that you can help them create an awesome experience for for each other and for themselves. Um, so that's your responsibility, and then the the participants' responsibility. And here I am, quite organizer focused. The, the the participants' responsibility is to follow the goddamn rules, like whatever you know. <laughs> There's a design here for a reason. And then if it's broken, and this is hard because the design, the participant may experience, like feel like, like the design is broken and actually it, it might not be. And then they might start fixing right. things. I haven't yeah. seen the whole of it yes. yet. And, yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, quite often, you know, when, once the failures start escalating, like you're, you're, you're going to realize also the, like the, the players are going to, the game starts and there are some rules, for instance, that are just never used because it's impossible to deploy them in the game, for instance. Like then that's just a bad design. And then sometimes the players will realize that, that there are some things now that they can't do, that they actually need doing, that there are no rules for, and then they're just going to improvise some way of solving that. So, so LARP hacking is the thing that I'm very conflicted about because I feel that if a game is, is ultimately flawed, it's great if the players can together can just like lift it up and make it into something <laughs> awesome just through the power of their like passionate play that kind of LARP hacking I'm great with 
the kind of LARP hacking where you go into somebody else's game and like, you know, introduce your own rules or start to play some other kind of game or like, I don't know, I heard about some people, so this has been done really well and really poorly, but I heard about some people who are like really sort of avant-garde play people who went to a very traditional fantasy game and inserted a bunch of like meta techniques and stuff into their own play. And then also sort of introduced some other players to this. Now that, I don't Mm. think, like, that's not, it may have made their game so much cooler, but that is actually not cool because that is not the game they signed up for and that's not the game these other players signed up for. Then there are groups of people who would say, who would go to the organizers and say, hey, we have these meta techniques that allow us to do these things. Could we play, like, a group of priests who would have this tent, which would actually be a black box, but let's not tell the players, where the characters would come in and they would go on these dream journeys and all of the meta techniques would, like, exist. They would be how magic works in this world. And then the organizers are like, oh, yeah, knock yourself out. And then they, then that would be, like, a thing that exists, that is intentionally present in the LARP, even though the players have brought it. And then that's fantastic LARP hacking. But there's, so it's about, like, not being arrogant, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And about, here, consensuality, like, in its mutual, mm-hmm. the mutuality there is, is super important. But, I mean, it, it sounds so dismissive of players to say they have to follow the rules. Obviously, they also have to find the way to be passionate about the thing, about the game, as it is. And I think also anybody who's LARPed knows that, like, we have these ideas about what the game is going to be, and we prepare so much, or we prepare not at all because we don't have the time, and then we show up, and no matter how much we're prepared, we feel we're underprepared. And if we're, for mm-hmm. once, we've prepared really well, we realize that nobody else has, so it was all for nothing. Like, nobody else <laughs> actually read all of those pages, so we're just, they're just going to be making it up as they go. It's never optimal, ever. And then when the LARP starts, it's never the LARP ever the LARP you thought it was going to be. And the character, even the character you're playing, is never going to be exactly what you thought it was going to be. So then you have to be you have to be attentive to what's going on. Right. And then the question is again, like how do how do we together? Like how do I make this meaningful for me together with all of these other people? Um, and that's the responsibility of the of the player. Right. Is this very esoteric? Like, did you want some like really practical advice? Because I'm not sure. I have no, 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 advice. no. This is much better, and I definitely, <laughs> because again, we don't want to get into that. Like, well, this is what I'm responsible for, and this is what you're responsible for, and 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 that's it. And so we, you know, that can be used to. It depends on the yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. No, it depends on the game. So mm. because those are also design choices. Those affect like especially. So how is game master power, for lack of a better word, distributed in the game? Like, do you have physical game masters there who make, get to make calls? In, in our design tradition in the Nordic countries, that's almost never possible. Like, there, basically, there are never, with very, very few excep- exceptions. And then you would, that would only actually happen in super avant-garde context. You'd be like, we will have the directors who will be at this LARP. And then people would be like, what? That is so weird. And then, I, you know, I... I I look at like documentation for American LARPs. So I'm like, huh? So these are these game masters who are like, oh, I see, they're here in the gameplay. Like, how weird, helping people solve problems. No, so so if you if you distribute the the that you know if you take that that function out, then you have to distribute the problem solving power to the players. So you have to trust them to to be able to negotiate things. You have to give them some very simple tools to be able to do that. And those are just design choices. Like both of those ways of doing it are completely valid. But you can't, for instance, you can't take players from one culture and throw them into this other type of game without telling them what it's going to be and and think that they're going to work it out because like they literally will not be able to work it out. Like I would never think to ask a game master for for help. So when I played the... um, 
uh, the College of Wizardry, where that was actually so, so with the influence of the Polish team, that was part of the thing. Like, if you're not happy with your game, or like if you need an NPC to attack your class for interesting dramatic purposes, you go to the NPC bunker and ask for one. This is probably really obvious to you, but like, I'm like, what? No, I've never played in a game like that. It's yeah. Like, but it's I'm... fantastic. First, I was like, that is so stupid. And then I tried it. I'm like, actually, that is amazing. <laughs> you know? They're just going to literally, like, do I want the Dementor? I might want, I didn't want one before, but now that I know that I can, of course, it's nice not to have to do everything with, like, my words. Right. Yeah. And, like, my whatever. Right. My little potions that I've prepared. We could also have. On the third class, you know, we could have an attack of some kind that we then gonna throw our potions at, <laughs> and that's like you know. So so there are no no correct rules about that. But even in that game, obviously the the outcome was still determined by the players together. Right. But but I mean it, it yeah. So there's another kind of responsibility that that is less popular, where I'm very much on the player's side, which is to like if stuff sucks in any way, or like if people have a bad experience, even if people have a bad experience because they didn't understand, you know, what game, what you were trying to do, then it's actually your fault as an organizer. And sometimes it wasn't actually your fault. Like sometimes they, you know, it was right there on the front page of, of your website and they didn't, you know, or they clicked, I have read the terms and, you know, whatever, and they didn't yeah. read the terms. Yeah. And mm -hmm. even though the terms were two lines and very clear or whatever, and then it's actually kind of their fault, but it's still your responsibility. Like, when they're there, or when this thing has happened, you're the organizers. You, you, you can't, like, unfortunately, you know, that it's, gonna, it's still your problem. And because it's your problem, it's still your responsibility. And, and saying that's actually not my problem is not going to make the problem go away ever. So you, so you have to be responsible about stuff. And I think that the biggest safety threat, the biggest safety concern that I have with LARP in general is stuff that comes from uh, organizers who haven't slept. Hmm. This is obviously with big events, but I think even at conventions, if people don't sleep, this can happen. Like we become so cognitively impaired yeah. by lack of sleep. We become so stupid yeah. and like primal and and dangerous to each other, you know, and and ourselves. So so game masters are gonna make bad calls. Like people when if something risky is, is happening and, and somebody would need to stop the game, they're not gonna stop the game or or they're gonna make some compromises about something or they're gonna make an you know and they're gonna ask an army to attack at a really dangerous time or whatever because because they're just not thinking straight. And I I don't think like I think we've been very lucky, I think at least in the Nordic countries over these few decades that I've been involved. I don't think we've had any deaths. I think there was, I've, somebody just told me recently that there had actually been a heart attack somewhere, but like it, that was unrelated. That just happened to happen at a LARP. But there have been so many close calls of people like falling off cliffs wow. and stuff and like miraculously unharmed. Mm -hmm. That's the downside of playing in like actual nature. <laughs> um, but, but I think like the, the thing that's actually likeliest to happen is that somebody on an organizing team is going to be in a really serious traffic accident because they're driving when they haven't slept. Mm -hmm. and, and like, how do we even design... Like, how do we protect against that? Yeah. And the other is, like, when people empowering communities are predatorial, that's another, like, that's a, it's, a, it's a completely different but kind of, like, the dynamics are very similar, mm -hmm. um, I think. But, I mean, obviously, like, if, if people are criminals, you're, it's, it's very difficult to, to stop them from being that. Like, then you have to, you have to engage the law and, you know, probably get them out of your communities in, in some way. Whereas if they're, if they're just stupid and don't sleep then you can actually do an intervention. And, and I mean, and I think we have to, 
I think the players probably can't and the players don't see and the organizers put a lot of effort into the players not seeing exactly how mortally tired they are. So organizers need to take care of each other. And there's one thing that I've seen in Denmark that is actually so nice. And I think everybody should do this everywhere in the world if you're running big events or conventions even, like conventions or big LARPs, is that you have some people, like you trade services. So for every LARP, there's going to be an organizer there whose job it is to come and take care of you, Mm. like the organizer's organizer. So it's somebody who has run a lot of games and they're going to volunteer to come to your game and their job is... To make, su- to make you food or bring you food, make sure there's coffee, make sure there are hugs, keep tabs on when you're sleeping or not. And when they see you at like 4 a.m. in the morning folding paper, because for some reason <laughs> there's always like folding paper, or if like the night before the LARP, you're laminating some kind of goddamn badges, yeah. <laughs> because that's what the main organizer should be doing it for him. Mm. They're going to say, you know what? I will now laminate these badges and you will now sleep. Yeah. And then it's also because if something goes to shits, you know, then you have an extra pair of hands there with people who have some runtime game mastering experience mm-hmm. who can step in and solve some problems, you know, whatever. If you have a player, something happens and you have a player who needs some serious attention, then maybe that game master, can, that extra pair of hands can volunteer so that you don't have to take somebody out of your running organization at that moment. Right. And actually also, if the problem is caused by your organization, it's super helpful to have somebody there who's kind of an outsider. Right, yeah, that's sort of third party. Who is not mm-hmm. as, it, yeah. And, and that's, it's also helpful for that. But but I mean, ideally, of course, nothing nothing goes to hell and their, their only job is to make sure that you sleep. And then you are morally obliged to do it for them, for their next event. I like this. You know, I feel yeah. like what you're describing is mentorship. Yeah, or bro- brotherhood or like sisterhood, I suppose, as well. It could just be, I mean, it, it, it's, it could, it's this thing about equals as well i yeah, guess caring yeah. yeah and also actually that person doesn't have to, it could also be somebody who's slightly more junior as an organizer because it's actually for them i mean i think i've seen so many game master rooms you know i've been present with so many lives have been run but i'm still fascinated like i could i could just go like if i didn't have it to work i just i could just go to larps and like see larps run yeah i would still think that's fascinating and i think a lot of a lot of old people in this community are like that but I think for a lot of young people, seeing it run is interesting for the opposite reason. Like they need to know what happens in that room so that mm-hmm. when they run a big event, they'll know what kinds of, you know, they can think in their mind, I'm going to organize this so much better when I run my game next year. <laughs> right, you know? right. They're not going to yeah. say it, obviously, but they're going to feel, you know, they're going to learn yeah. from, from watching. And then it's, then it's actually not such a big ask. I mean, it sounds like a big deal to maybe travel to another city and, and sit in a room for three days and make coffee and hug, give hugs. But, but actually... You know, you'd only ask the kind of people for whom that's the best thing in the world anyway. And and because we're not actually great at communicating game design, like it's, again, like the problem of, of describing it or reading about it afterwards, we did this and this worked and this didn't work, is like you can read the best documentation and it's not going to give a very good like feel for what actually happened on site. So it's also, I think, a secondary benefit if we would do this systematically is that like experiences would um, spread so much faster. Everybody would get better faster because we'd be present at like twice the amount of LARPs than we than, than it's physically possible for us to run. All kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, Joanna, it was uh, really really nice having you on the show. Super interesting chat. Um, if if anyone listening wants to keep up with what you're up to and what you're doing. Is there, um, should they just go to 
participationsafety.wordpress.org or yeah, I think that's best I don't like I have a website but it's not very up to date like they can find that by googling my name or whatever maybe I will make uh, one I mean I have a company as well so so uh, we're called Odyssey Participation Design Agency you don't need to actually know that uh, we'll just post a link but but we make LARPs uh, as well as uh, sort of commercial participatory events and consulting right. and stuff like that which we could do which we could do a completely different hour and a half talk yeah. about experience design and yeah especially in the commercial world thank you for mm-hmm. that. and thank you for this it's been fantastic oh was, i'm so so glad you come on it was super super interesting watching all of your videos and talks that are online and getting caught up with that stuff so yay well thanks again to joanna for joining me from several time zones away and as always thank you for listening There will be links to Joanna's talks and other projects in the show notes. If you have questions or comments about today's show, feel free to get in touch via email at backstorypodcast at gmail.com, on Google Plus at Backstory Podcast, or on Twitter at BackstoryCast. You can also follow my personal Twitter at MuscularPikachu if you're interested in such topics as which fictional characters I have crushes on and what fruits are currently in season near me. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. You can find more great shows like One Shot, Campaign, Modifier, Talking Tabletop, First Watch, and our newest show, Second Watch, which features the hosts of Modifier, Talking Tabletop, and myself, talking about our various projects and games and life in general, all at oneshotpodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. That's U-J-I-C-O. Talk to you later, heroes.